And welcome, friends, to Generations. This is Kevin Swanson, your host as well, Adam McManus, co-hosting for us on this edition. He is the regular host on theworldview.com, our five-minute news update from a distinctively Christian worldview perspective. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Great to be back with you. Well, today, we're going to take a look at the ongoing stream of scandals coming out of evangelicalism and, again, addressing how to respond to this kind of sinful scandal that's happening at the top echelons of modern evangelical Christianity. How do we respond to this? And I would call this the third wave of scandals, first of which would be Jimmy Swaggart and his friends from the 1980s and 1990s. I can remember distinctly being a radio announcer on KVEC in San Luis Obispo, California in the 1980s and coming across the Jimmy Swaggart story on the newswire. And wondering to myself, how do you report on this rather public sin on the part of, well, a well-known charismatic preacher? Um, And of course, you followed these as well through the years, I'm sure, Adam, as you participated in mainstream media. Um, Our second wave was the fundamentalists and mainstream evangelicals of the 2000s, Jack Shop of uh, the Fundamentalist Church out in Indiana. Uh, in 2013, Mark Driscoll, 2015, Ted Haggard, he would have been early on, I'm going to say 2006, 2007, uh, Tullian Tavigian as well, um, and Bill Hybels, who was pretty much the king of the evangelical megachurch movement of the 1980s and 1990s, he toppled as well, I'm going to say about four or five years ago. So these, the, the, when we have a third wave with Hillsong and International House of Prayer, Casey, going down in flames recently. So this is a long sequence of scandals that seems to be wearying to the Christian soul. Is, I mean, do you get it? Do you take it that way? I mean, what a shock it was at the beginning. And then it continued to shock us as it went. And of course, evangelicalism was really uh, turned into the mega church thing, the mega leader. And you get these guys at the tippy top of fame and fortune leading large movements of the Christian evangelical church, not a very decentralized model, but more of an increasingly centralized model, at the top of which sits some of the most powerful and well-known Christian leaders in the history of the modern church, and so many of them have toppled. Well, I was a Christian talk show host with Salem Communications and based in San Antonio, Texas for 13 years, did a daily three-hour call and talk show every year went to the International Christian Retail Show, which featured Christian authors and singers of the most substantial backgrounds, everyone from Point of Grace in their day to Max Licato. And I remember Ted Haggard was one of the authors. I interviewed, I had met him, very charismatic, and he was not only the leader of kind of a big megachurch in Colorado, I think it was called New Life, but he also was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and yet secretly was having these homosexual escort trysts Mm -hmm, that his wife, to her great credit, was willing to forgive, and he had to subsequently resign out of embarrassment and being held accountable. He no longer was in in a position of influence. I met him personally, and you would never have guessed any of that. Having met him, having read his books, having watched his sermons, it just makes you grimace and shake your head. But, you know, the Bible says 
he who is without sin cast the first stone, but also says, don't worry about the splinter in someone else's eye. Pull out the log in your own. So there is a healthy biblical understanding of self-accountability, that we are to use these, I think, crisis moments in evangelicalism where these leaders fall hard and fall far to do some introspection and to look in our own hearts. What areas in our life are in sin that we need to repent of, or are we dancing around something and we need to come clean with our spouse, with our family, with those whom we love? I think what makes this so unique is that we see such an extraordinary number of scandals. There always have been scandals. You had the Simon the Sorcerer show up at the beginning of the church in uh, among the Samaritans. This would have been in uh, the book of Acts. And so it's not unusual to run into an occasional scandal, but the sheer number of them, I think, is what's been difficult for Christians and, of course, the leaders. These are the leaders. They're supposed to be beyond uh, reproach, and we don't find this with so many of the modern megachurch pastors. And uh, the hero worship, the big movement, uh, has been, I think, somewhat uh, negative to the Christian experience of the 21st century. Well, we've got a new wave of this happening with Hillsong and all of these scandals that have come forth from Hillsong recently. And now the International House of Prayer, IHOPKC, is uh, meeting its match right now with this uh, the fall of its leader, its founder, Mike Bickle. So this is the recent report that comes from that. Over management of the crisis, the executive committee has received new information to now confirm a level of inappropriate behavior on the part of Mike Bickle that requires IHOPKC to immediately, formally, and permanently separate from him. All right, so that's the statement that came out, I'm going to say about three, four days ago, and uh, it does appear that uh, they have completely removed Mike Bickle, the founder of International House of Prayer in Kansas City, which I think came together in 1999, and uh, has been a lot of information, apparently new information related to allegations of clergy abuse against him, and that would have been of sexual nature uh, relating to the Seventh Commandment. So again, this is uh, somewhat of a shock to the system of those who have been plugged into the charismatic movement uh, there in Kansas City. And what's interesting is back in the 1980s and early 1990s, there were three men associated with the Kansas City prophets. That would have been Bob Jones, Paul Kane, and Mike Bickle. So these were the three men that were very well known. And by the way, Adam, I don't know if you know this, but I witnessed the Kansas City Prophets at a vineyard in Santa Maria, California in 1989-ish. My wife was attending there at the time. We were not married. Uh, she was attending at this vineyard in Santa Maria, California. Of course, you know, gradually over time, uh, she you know shifted her denomination, so to speak. But, but uh, I was there, and uh, there was a special meeting of the Kansas City Prophets, and they put on quite a demonstration, prophetically identifying people in the congregation that were sick of this or that and purportedly healing them on the spot. And that sort of thing was going on in this meeting. But there again, there were three... A key men associated with the Kansas City Prophets in the uh, 1980s and early 1990s. It would have been Bob Jones, Paul Kane, and Mike Bickle. So these were the three ministers and um, that were involved with that. Well, it turns out that Paul Kane 
was disfellowshipped from uh, the Kansas City Fellowship in October of, I'm going to say, 1989. Uh, he had issued an apology in which he repented for immoral behavior and pledged to seek counseling for his alcoholism. Uh, although celebrated in charismatic circles for his accuracy as a New Testament prophet, quote unquote, Paul Cain was disciplined and disfellowshipped. Uh, because of his involvement in heavy drinking and homosexuality. Uh, so, And then, again, Bob Jones was, according to Mike Bickle, a very important prophetic man, at least in my life, quote-unquote, and in the early days of the movement. Bickle described uh, Bob Jones, not, not the Bob Jones of Bob Jones University fame, but the Bob Jones of the Kansas City Prophets fame. Bickle described how Bob Jones prophesied to him in 1983 that God was going to raise up a worldwide young adult prayer movement led by prophetic singers and musicians in Kansas City. Uh, Though Bickle was at first skeptical of Jones and even wondered if Jones was a false prophet, he became convinced that Jones was a true prophet when Jones accurately predicted a snowfall on March 21st, 1983, after several weeks of unseasonably warm weather. Now, it turns out that Bob Jones, an associate of the Olitha Worship Center of the Metro Vineyard Fellowship of Kansas City confessed to sexual misconduct with two women who attended a vineyard church in the Kansas City area. And this would have been in 1991. Okay, so now you have Bob Jones, Paul Kane, and they've fallen for sexual sin. Now, finally, 22 years later, Mike Bickle has been dismissed. So I guess my question is, has the Kansas City prophets and the International House of Prayer Kansas City turned into a gigantic fraud. So I think that's the question that, you know, occurs to people. Is all of the charismatic movement given to fraud? All three of the major Kansas City prophetic movement experienced a moral fall and were removed from ministry. So what, see, again, I think people are asking these questions, and legitimately so. They should ask questions. Um, and so how do we answer questions like this? As you said, Adam, the first thing we do is we take the log out of our own eye. Yes, amen. But at the same time, you know, congregants follow leaders. They're, they join churches and they sign up for teaching from certain people. And Jesus said in his teaching that by their fruits, ye shall know them and cautioned us not to follow every Tom, Dick, and Harry that shows up and calls himself a prophet. So, right. uh, so I think people are asking these questions. I think in the case of these three so-called prophets, I think the first thing that I would say is, uh, listen, if someone is wrong once and they claim to be a prophet, they're not a prophet. That is the biblical test. We know that to be the case. Secondly, it appears as though there is a very unhealthy mix of narcissism with manipulation and excessive spiritual authority. In the case of Bob Jones, who died back in 2014, and yet his influence surpassed that, his legacy continued through this day in this uh, International House of Prayer movement, one of the things he was found guilty of, his misconduct, was encouraging women to undress in his office so they could stand, quote-unquote, naked before the Lord in order to receive a word from God, end quote. If that's not the, the most manipulative, bizarre, 
authoritarian weird thing to do to misuse and abuse your spiritual authority to convince some impressionable, gullible, vulnerable, hurting, traumatized woman to literally undress because they need to be naked before the Lord. And they're thinking, "Uh, this sounds kind of weird, but okay, if this is what my spiritual leader is telling me to do, I guess I'll do it. This reveals a lot to me. Well, a couple of things. As I mentioned, uh, there is a rising skepticism towards the charismatics and to the Christian faith. My first point here is don't give way to total skepticism. As I've said, there's always the Simon Sorcerers. There's always these cults, but be careful. Be ever so careful. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19 tells us there will be factions, schisms among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So there are the demonic schisms testing our faith as to whether we are going to stick around and identify the true faith, stick to the true faith as given to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We need to remember the wheat and the tares grow up together. The fake and the real are usually found in the same church, but the real will persevere. The real will root and ground themselves in the truths of God's word. The fake and the hypocritical will usually betray themselves eventually. And also, here's one more thing I think we need to remind ourselves of. There are no apostles and prophets revealing new revelation as that which would be equal to or even approach to the level of authority provided by the apostles and prophets that are providing the canon for us in the closing of the canon of the New Testament. There, 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 there will be no more first Kevin and second Kevin, third Kevin, added to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Adam, I'm sure that's a relief for you and for others as well. But we, we can't see ourselves as equal in authority to the prophets and apostles that uh, were gifted uh, with the truth and the revelation of Jesus Christ and the closing of the canon during the first generation of the church. So to keep that in mind as well. And then another point I want to make on this, Adam, is that the integrity of the founders of any religious movement really does matter. Now, you shouldn't be discouraged. There have been plenty of founders of Christian denominations and movements and churches in the history of the Christian church that have not been morally compromised like this. I think of John Knox, Martin Luther, George Whitfield. These men were not morally compromised as defined by the laws of God. Now, they had issues, but they, they, they were beyond reproach, and they qualified according to 1 Timothy 2 requirements for, or 1 Timothy 3 requirements for elders and pastors in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, it's just modern charismatic movements that have been greatly flawed, and uh, many of these should be avoided. I would say stay away from these particular movements. Don't have anything to do with them. Think about the Kansas City Prophets, Hillsong, genres. They're messed up. The foundations were flawed from the very beginning. Frank Houston was flawed from the beginning. His son, not beyond reproach either. I think the same thing applies to the Kansas City prophets. So we, we really need to take this qualification seriously from 1 Timothy 3. The first qualification of a bishop or elder in the church, 1 Timothy 3, is that they are blameless, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. So when we say blameless, what do we mean? Beyond reproach, not one censurable one who is censurable, or somebody who will be censured by a church court or by a civil court for that matter. So the integrity of the founders really matters. Don't join a movement, I would say, until there's some track record, at the very least, a historical track record, which, by the way, it seemed to me that there had been something of a historical track record in place with Bob Jones and Paul Kane in 1991 and 1995 and 1999. 
there was a track record. And uh, wow, it seems to me that people should have paid attention to the news stories and to the church censures that were placed upon the founders of these various movements. The integrity of the founders and the leaders, I believe, really matters. If the foundations proved to have been rotten, you should abandon the movement immediately. Go find something better with better roots, preferably roots that sink deeper into history as well. Deep into the Reformation, for example, the waywardness of modern movements seem to make almost every other modern movement extremely suspect. We live in the age of innovative cults and just a dime a dozen. It's exciting, I know, to get onto some new bandwagon, but take a longer term historical view of things. These these new fads, they come and they go. And they usually take people off the beaten track. So the lesson learned is study history, church history, very important. And that's, of course, why we provide several church history courses in our 12-year biblical worldview-based curriculum for, uh, for Christian families as part of the Christian worldview generations curriculum provided at generations.org. Here's one more point I want to make. And I know, Adam, you probably have something more to say, but let me throw this out as well. Don't be a sinaholic. That is, people who seek signs and miracles. These aren't men and women of faith. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he left them and departed. So Jesus warns us that there are just too many in this wicked and adulterous generation that seek after a sign. It shouldn't be surprising that those that are always seeking signs seem to give way to adultery. You know, people who are just like, they're totally into supernatural miracles all the time. So what does this mean? Don't be a sinaholic. What I mean by this is don't be addicted to signs, the miraculous, the supernatural, as if this is what it will take to generate faith in you. The problem with this is that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Okay. Not the things seen. Faith is the evidence of things not right. seen. Not seen. <laughs> That's what faith is. You know, I, I don't say you got to raise somebody from the dead, you know, heal somebody's measles right now, or I won't believe in Jesus. No, no, no doesn't work that way. No, no. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And blessed are they who do not see and still believe. That's what Jesus said to Thomas. So keep that in mind as well. We definitely have too many doubting Thomases in our world where they say they must put their finger in the wrist and the feet of Christ and the side where he was speared by the Roman soldiers or otherwise they won't believe. And that's the counsel that Jesus gave. Greater are those who have not seen but still believe. He is exactly what he said right after doubting Thomas, finally said, my Lord and my God. We need to get away from the the doubting Thomas mentality and uh, be a people of faith. And, 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 you know, we don't have to have huge faith. We have to have what Jesus describes as the faith of a mustard seed. And if you've ever seen an actual mustard seed, you need to look on YouTube and see how small it is in the palm of someone's hand. You can barely even see it. It's so small. But once it takes root in good soil, it grows like this gigantic bush and it provides shade and shelter for many a bird. And that is exactly a perfect picture of of the kingdom of God. We are supposed to have very little faith because it's it's not our faith that saves us. It's Jesus Christ's willingness to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And if we have the faith just the size of a mustard seed, we will be able to 
experience and enjoy the forgiveness of Christ and the assurance of an eternal address in heaven and be a part of the growing kingdom of God here in America and be a part of it around the world as we pray and as we give to missions and as we go ourselves. And I would say one final point is that when we are aware beyond our own self-introspection of our own sin and our need to repent, when we are aware of a good friend you can see that person's face right now who you know is in serious trouble because either you've recognized the results of their sinful choices or they have confessed their own sin to you. Be the Christian that will hold them accountable and ask them the tough questions and help them along the way, the narrow way that John Bunyan describes in Pilgrim's Progress. We need to be the accountability partner that is worthy of Christ and is the ambassador for his kingdom to help keep a wayward friend on the straight and narrow, just like we need others to keep us on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. That's good. Well, friends, uh, let me end with this uh, one more point here. Uh, When we look at a movement, a church, uh, a ministry work, what we're looking for is a substantial effect, not a movement measured by signs and emotional responses, but a substantial movement of God that actually transforms lives. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, how the gospel came to you, not in word, but in power and the spirit of God and transformed these people from idolatry to serve the living and true God. I mean, that that's just a, a radical transformation. Uh, so the word of God needs to be transforming lives. Uh, Are the leaders themselves soaked in drunkenness, adultery, a fixation on the world, a fixation on money and so forth? That's not a movement of God. That's a movement of the devil. And one of the things I was thinking of as I was preparing this was the the amazing work of God in Hawaii at the very beginning in 1819 when the gospel first arrived there. Such a transformation, amazing transformation. And I want to read this brief portion just to encourage you as to a true work of God upon a pagan nation, and and it happened in fairly short order, a transformation of an entire nation of uh, islands, phenomenal. The light was turned on in the Gentile world in a phenomenal way, as promised uh, by the uh, prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. First missionaries arrived in 1819 to a very, very, very dark land. But one of the tribal chiefesses, Capulani, raised in Kona, out on the big island, she came under the missionary's instruction almost immediately in 1819. She repented. By the way, when they found her, when they came across her, she was sitting nude on the beach. But she repented of a lifestyle of drunkenness and sexual sin, began pressing for an end to infanticide and drunkenness and murder and thievery among her tribe. She was queen, so she she worked to, to end those sorts of things. And then she exemplified what I would call the religious reformation of Hawaii in uh, what was to become an iconic demonstration of faith with her public rejection of Pele, the god of volcanoes, uh, taking upon herself to journey up the volcano on the big island. She made the 100-plus mile journey on foot. She obliterated the fearful power the demonic god had held over the people in one simple act. What she did was she first ate the sacred berries on the mountain. It was an act considered sacrilegious by the priests. She walked across the burning lava and tossed sacred rocks into the volcano. And she rose up in the middle of all her people and she cried out, For everybody to hear, my God is Jehovah. He it was who kindled these fires. I do not fear Pele. Should I perish by her wrath? Then you may fear her power. But if Jehovah saves me while I'm breaking her taboos, 
then you must fear and love him. The gods of Hawaii are vain, is what she said. Well, this courageous act totally broke the back of the religious cultists of Pele. She died of cancer in 1841. When the missionary lady asked her if she was ready to die, she said, when I think of my sins, I'm afraid. But when I think of the righteousness of Christ, I am comforted. Her last words. Well, there's so many other stories. The missionary had uh, 900 schools established by the 1830. That would have been 11 years into it. 900 schools, 50,000 students. Um, The missionary William Richards reported that Hawaiian families were practicing daily family devotions every day. Counted at least 50 homes in Lahaina alone where the morning and evening sacrifice regularly offered to the true God. When I wake up in the morning, I find people waiting at the door to converse the truths of scripture. Houses of prayer multiplying in every part of the village is amazing. Missionary Rufus Anderson also testified of such radical reformation of faith and life to be nothing less than the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to this. In the spring of 1838, there was evidence of the presence of the Spirit at nearly all the stations on the island. So there was Maui, Oahu, and Kauai as well. It was a work with power, and the power evidently that of the Holy Spirit of God. The vile, groveling, wretched became the attentive hearers of the Word of God and began to think and feel, even such as had before given no sense of conscience, became anxious inquirers after the way of life. Whenever, wherever the missionary appointed a meeting, they were there, a listening audience all there. The Sabbath was extensively observed. Rarely were natives seen intoxicated. Family worship prevailed even to a greater extent than the public profession of religion. Then in January of 1841, the governor of Honolulu, this is the governor of Honolulu, set apart a day of Thanksgiving. Okay, this would have been approximately 22 years after the missionaries had got there and discipled all the islands. He gave an address in January of 1841, this is the governor of Honolulu. He says this, and just summarizing what God had done. In looking over the years that are past, I see great reason to praise God for his goodness to me and to everybody who's here present. I look back to the reign of Kamahameha I and around on the uh, present state of things today, and I say there is no being so great and so good as Jehovah God, and there are no laws so good as his laws. There used to be idolatry here. We worship wooden gods and feather gods, and all sorts of worthless things. We then thought it was right to do so, but we see our error now because we have seen the new light. In former days, right and wrong were all alike to us, but now we see there's a difference. There's a right and there's a wrong. Our idol gods know nothing, but Jehovah knows all things and has revealed some good things to us. In this, we are blessed. And today, let us be thankful. Uncleanness abounded in our times of darkness. Some chief men had 10 women. Some had more, some had less. The law of marriage was then unknown. Untold evils arose from this source, such as infanticide and murder and such like things. All these evils are now done away, but they have uh, not quite done away, but they have greatly decreased. We abuse the maimed, the blind, the aged, and the chiefs oppress the poor without mercy. We did not know that these things were wrong, for we had no wise teachers. But now it is plain to us that all these things are wicked. Uh, but in this respect, there has been a wonderful change for the better. Property is now secured in all by the laws of the kingdom. We chiefs do not dare take other people's property. Uh, some chiefs have done so, but we have called them to account. Very good were all things in my mind in those days. But latterly, I've been acquainted with the word of God, the law of God, showing a better way than any I knew before. Let us bless the name of Jehovah for all his benefits for us and our nation. Blessed is the man who keeps the law of the Lord. Well, <laughs> that happened some 23 years after the coming of the missionaries in 1819, a transformation of an island chain. Adam, I would really appreciate it if the governor of the state of Colorado would <laughs> issue a statement much like that. Uh, sadly, that hasn't yes. happened yet. But, uh, but praise God, no. can the transformation of nations happen by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, it has throughout history. 
I could tell you literally hundreds of stories, and I have put these in my new book, uh, Taking the World for Jesus, a new edition of which is coming out in about four to five months. But friends, the stories, yeah, not just hundreds, but thousands of stories of transformation of tribes, nations, amazing what Christ has done throughout 2,000 years of world history. But uh, let's not just be satisfied with a bunch of emotionalism and a few signs here and there. No, no, no. We're looking for the transformation of nations here. And that's what you saw with the missionary work in Hawaii in 1819. That wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus, and we want to invite you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 